happen and the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth cracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vast against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking the ones who keep on grappling The listeners some followers who get it keep on stacking Great friend and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Cali back by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, what is good? So, I'm really excited about this week's podcast because... As many of you who listen in Southern California know, and those of you that are sports fans outside of Southern California know, two weeks ago from when I'm recording this, which is now August 7th, it's a Tuesday, about two weeks ago, Trevor Hoffman was one of the inductees in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. And I didn't go to the Hall of Fame inductions because uh, as much as I would have liked to have gone and felt like, wow, you know, I've got a relationship with a guy who's going into the Hall of Fame and got a relationship with a lot of his close friends. I feel like I could really go and be a part of something interesting and, and unique and, and be right in the middle of it all. Um, but I, I had my daughter, Jillian, who's 16, who was playing soccer in a big event called the Surf Cup here in, in Southern California. And kids literally come in from all over the country and other parts of the world. And it was such a big tournament. And this is such a critical time in her development that I didn't want to go let me rephrase that. I would have loved to have gone to Trevor's induction, but being at my daughter's soccer event was so much more important to me personally. It was fine that I could see Trevor Hoffman's induction speech that took only 11 minutes on television or on the internet. I didn't need to be there. And I did need to be with my kids. And interesting because when I scheduled this podcast with Trevor, I said, Hey, can we meet? the Friday after your Hall of Fame, because everybody had spoken to him before and leading up to, and everybody documented his career. I wanted to talk to him afterwards. And, you know, like everything, you, you know, what try and get into what makes a guy tick. Because I remember when I started this podcast, and we've talked about this as the years gone on, I wanted to do this. I, was, I thought Dick Emberg's doing this. But Dick Emberg's 80-something years old. I mean, Dick Emberg doesn't know how to listen to a podcast, and yet he's got one, and I don't. And I thought, I better hurry up and catch up. And so what, what I thought this podcast was going to be at the beginning of the year was, you know, sports, some talk. I really selfishly thought this was going to be about my startup business. Many of you are starting to see me promote this rather heavily now on Twitter. It's called Sided. And I thought I was going to use this as a platform to onboard more users for Sided in the world of sports and political talk debate. But what's happened is for me, and I know a lot of people only because I get the feedback, what's happened for me is I wind up getting coached every week by somebody different. So if you're listening every week, and I know a lot of people, believe it or not, are, because they listen when they work out, they listen in their car, I'm learning something every week. I'm getting coached every week, whether it was Timothy Jackson and how he changed his life 
from criminal and bad guy gangbanger to good guy and Christian and businessman and husband and father. I'm learning from that guy. I'm learning from the CEO of Burger Lounge weeks ago. Uh, I'm learning from Ari Siegel, who's in the esports world. What I'm getting at is every week, no matter who I'm talking to, Landon Donovan, Landon Donovan, the, the, the lesson of perseverance. I mean, I'm learning something every single week. So when I'm promoting my new business on Twitter and I'm, I'm trying, all I'm trying to do is very modestly get to a thousand users and people are sending me feedback. Like, Hey, listen, dude, every time I go there, I've got to sign in. It's a pain in my ass. And I'm like, yeah, why didn't I think of that? That seems rather obvious. One of the reasons I really didn't think about it is because, as one of my investors pointed out to me recently, dude, you got to stop winging it. I mean, I'm winging it, meaning I'm visionary thinking product. I'm trying to build a product. But there's a whole world of business on the other side that pff, it's just not my strength. When I talk to Trevor Hoffman, here's a guy who's playing shortstop at the highest level of college baseball. If you're the shortstop at the University of Arizona, you're, you're going to be a Major League Baseball player. You're the best player on the field. I mean, shortstop, that's the guy. And Trevor Hoffman finds out later in his career, yeah, I can, I'm a decent fielder, but man, I can't hit. And when he was told that he couldn't hit, rather than get upset and overwork himself and, you know, just, just say, I'll do anything I can to get better, he actually accepted it wasn't a demotion. He he accepted, you're not going to be a position player anymore. We think you can pitch, so we're going to cultivate you over here. He didn't resent it and fight it and have an ego about it. He actually ran with it and became great at it. And then later, as you'll hear, when he learns to develop the pitch that makes him a Hall of Famer, how that all comes to be. It's, it's a fascinating conversation. I will say in advance, this is not a breakdown of baseball. This is not about statistics. It's about and this is what I was going for, learning the lessons of where somebody comes from, how they become who they are, and how they become great. And that's the conversation I had with Trevor Hoffman. What's really amazing about all of this is back to the beginning of wanting to be at his speech, but having my own children to, to you know uh, want to be with as well and need to be with. When I went to meet Trevor Hoffman, and this was Friday of last week, so early August of 2018, because who knows when you might be listening to this, he had his son, Quinn, who is a kid who I was following his career when he was in high school. I always asked Trevor, how's your son doing? Because he, he plays baseball at Harvard. Little did I know that he had an injury. Quinn was there with Trevor. So I set up three microphones and said, kid, you're getting involved. This is now just not an interview with Trevor Hoffman a week after he goes into the Hall of Fame. This is Trevor Hoffman and his oldest son. This is really, this is interesting stuff, family dynamics and things that you've, you know, you're just not going to hear in an interview with a, with a guy who's a baseball player going into the Hall of Fame. This is really close, personal, family kind of stuff. This is cool. Trevor Hoffman, congratulations. I mean, one of the true legends of not just baseball, but certainly in the community I live in, San Diego, in North County, San Diego, a true legend of the community. So here is newly enshrined Baseball Hall of Famer, and as I say, San Diego legend, Trevor Hoffman, on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. You, you, you like the photo on the mic flag? I do. You think that's cool? <laughs> Come on, Trevor. That, that, that took a little bit of courage. I bet it did. You're in touch with your inner self. 
Right. Oh, that's good. I All should right. probably talk into the mic instead yeah. of looking at the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is awesome because everybody's been talking to you going into the Hall of Fame. I was waiting till after you went into the Hall of Fame. And the fact that we were able to get together here today and have breakfast and hang out and then the extra treat of your son, who's a player, a baseball player at Harvard. Um, this, this is this is now a treat that we I have both of you guys, not just <laughs> not just the Hall of Famer, because you're interesting, too, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, talk right into these mics. And, um, and yeah, it's, we'll, a, it's really a treat for us that we got a chance to kind of sit around and and kind of break bread a little bit before we kind of got going. And, you know, it's, it's always been over the phone or it's always been in the studio. So getting a chance to kind of be normal folks, uh, I think was great, Scotty. So I'm glad that we were able to do this. But, you know, more than anything, you talk about Quinn and his aspirations. But, you know, to kind of grow up in a clubhouse and then to fo- finally see, you know, the pinnacle of what a career can look like in Cooperstown. Um, it's going to be neat to get his perspective on some things after the fact. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you are here, Quinn, because we've been sitting here before we turned on the equipment. And, you know, you guys, usually what I do is I just turn it on and we just talk, you know. Um, so all the preamble was missed, unfortunately, where we were just talking about kids and fatherhood. And, um, but you're, you're at Harvard, and what an opportunity to be at a school like Harvard to play baseball. A kid from San Diego whose father became a Hall of Fame pitcher how is Harvard going for a kid from from out here in SD? I mean, it's talk it's right into that. Day, definitely man. very difficult school, but uh, definitely learned a lot from my parents. I mean, growing up, basically living in a locker room, you kind of as a kid, you're always looking up to your father, and he's kind of a guy who you kind of want to emulate in everything you do in life. And to kind of see him go through his daily work and kind of everything he did day in and day out, and the way he led in the locker room with a bunch of other guys. Um, and all of his teammates just to kind of see what he did in the past and to kind of see all of his, uh, his fruits to be, um, or uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. but <laughs> It doesn't matter. I know what you're trying to but, say. But uh, just to kind of see what he, uh, what he accomplished and the fact that he is basically a living legend now yeah. is, is well, very well, astonishing. This is great. I have my hand so. up his shirt. He's like my little puppet right now. This is great. He's getting to pump me up. But, dude, I said it to you before we turned this equipment on. You know, when you go to Harvard, you have a chance to um, set up your life with the relationships that you get to make because any kid who's at Harvard, or let me just rephrase it, but like most kids at Harvard, their mom or dad or grandparents, they're usually somebody. And you set up relationships for life at Harvard. But when the kids talk to you there, hey, your dad's somebody too, dude, big time. <laughs> I mean, he may not be the CEO of a Forbes 500 company, but he's a Hall of Famer, right, dude? He is a Hall of Famer in my eyes, but most of the kids there may, might not know that. But uh, they they don't really understand the baseball side of it. So uh, what it's kind of cool. I'm a nice trivia team. question around the It is. Uh, the guys the on the baseball team table. definitely do, and they were, they were all pumped to, to see that happen. But. They actually had a couple teammates show up at Cooperstown. Oh, yeah. Chad, uh, Chad Monado and, uh, and Grant Stone. Grant Stone they both made the trip over. Yeah. What's the deal? Are these just guys who became buddies at Harvard, or are these kids from out yeah, this no, way? Yeah, they're, uh, they're in my class. They're my teammates. Uh, Chad's another infielder. He and I will be up the middle. Um, Grant, Grant Stone's a starting pitcher. Um, when we kind of just connected, and they were playing in the NECBL, and they made the, they made the three-hour trip down to come and see my dad. And Chad went to Huntington cool. Beach High School, though, local kid, and then Stoney's uh, an East Coast kid and grew up near the Boston area. So a nice little mix. That's really cool, man. That is really awesome. So – I'll start off by asking you this question. You ready? Because this is, like you said, usually we do things over the phone. Right. It's on radio. This is a chance for us to kind of stretch a little bit. And this, these podcasts have turned into 
um, stories of success and how people have gotten there. Uh-huh. And, and from all walks of life, whether you are a CEO of Burger Lounge or, or um, I just had a guy on recently who was a gangbanger from Oceanside, in and out of jail his whole life and then fixed his life and, and now has become an entrepreneur. And so there's so many different ways to get to success. And that's what these, wind, these conversations turn into. So here you are, just less than a week removed from going into the Hall of Fame. So I, I really want to talk about that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you did something this morning that really struck me as I was driving over here. Your dad t- sent me a text and said, hey, I'm going to order breakfast. What would you like? I'll, I'll order for you. And I thought, gosh, he's so normal. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor Hoffman is such a normal guy. That, is, that would be – if I would have been here first – which I was always trying to be. I would have done the exact same thing. Hey, you want me to order for you? Why are you so normal? Well, I think I was lucky to um, be in an environment, in a team team environment, that those were just the normalcies of the way you went out your business. Um, the guys that think by themselves and think selfishly get exposed. And so kind of goes back to my roots with mom and dad. It's like, you know, how would you want to be treated? You know, you treat others that same way. And so... Um, it just—I wasn't trying to be cool and gain brownie points, but it's just kind of facilitate. I don't want you to come to the table and I'm eating in the middle <laughs> of my breakfast. Oh, hey, bro, what did you want to have to eat? Um, kind of thing. We could expedite the process. So, I think it's just an idea of thinking of others more so than always thinking about yourself. Well, okay. So, take baseball out of it for a moment. Um, <clears throat> I say, why are you so normal? And you bring up your mom and dad. I would love to hear about you growing up as a kid. You know where you are in Southern California, what's going on, what your parents are doing for a living. I mean, I can read all this stuff around the Internet, but yep. I, want, I want to hear about it. So Awesome. You, you become a, you're normal, but you, you, you're the baby of three, right? Baby of th- yes, baby of three. So I'm the, I'm the last one of the litter. Okay. And a mistake. A mistake. A mistake. A mistake. Nine and 13 years older, I was the oops baby. Oh, really? So uh, <laughs> dad had me at 55. Mom's 20 years his younger at 35 when... Uh, I'm on, on my way. And so really growing up, it was, you know, in the midst of my brother's high school careers. And they were good. They were good in basketball. They were good in baseball. Um, and they went to the local school down the street. Dad um, grew up in the Midwest. Mom is from Europe. And they were just simple, everyday kind of folk. And when the games went on, you know, on Wednesdays, they were – they're early getting their seats and getting organized and I was a little antsy I was a younger brother at like five or six and to sit in the the stands and be normal you know not normal but to be kind of buttoned up that just wasn't my style I had a lot of energy and so they kind of let me run around I kind of got into mischief and got in the way of things but when it was time to watch what they were getting ready to do I paid attention it was like I want to be on that stage I want to have the opportunity to to do that so I aspired of to a degree that when I got to Savannah High School I would want to have the same experience but when you talk about going back into the house, in between those moments, it was, you know what? There's dinner on the table at 5.30. We're going to eat what mom makes. She's made a certain amount. You better get through your first helping if you want to get seconds. And if you're not fast, you're not going to get second helpings. <laughs> and I had older brothers that were bigger and faster eaters. So I had to figure <laughs> out a way to, if I'm going to grow, I'm going to have to be quicker. Um, but we, we went to church on Sundays, and we went and saw my aunt and uncle on Saturdays in Pasadena they come to us on the other weekend. We'd have a full-on um, sit-down meal in the dining room where it was fine china and, you know, your knife and fork on one side and the spoon on the other, and you could eat when your food was put down. But when dessert came, you waited till Mom sat down so that she could enjoy it. 
and dad would light up a cigar at the end of dinner and it was always a cuban and it just made the house smell warm and um amazing family experience once a week and so um it's hard to describe how influential that really was that there was a, a consistent routine in growing up and you know i'd hear mom's stories you know i mentioned it at the hall of fame if a job's worth doing it's worth doing right um sometimes you just got to tighten up your bootstraps um no crying over spilt milk you know she was gnarly and i and i looked at I talked to AJ Preller about this. I go, look at the mom. I mean, if it's one thing to have a strong dad and how he feels about what your career should be like, but look at the moms because moms are with the kids more often than not. And um, she was a ball buster. She went after it. She didn't cut us any slack. She had no, no, no sway in some things. And so I always kind of feel like sometimes that's an indication of how things can go. You say she was from Europe. She grew up in England, just outside of London, um, forty miles to the west or the east, South End on Sea. Why was she such a disciplinarian? Um, they didn't have a lot growing up through the war. And, and I, I take that back. They did. But I think growing up through the war, it was a different thing. Um, my grandma and grand, her parents basically sent her to the north, so it wasn't quite as close to London. So the bombings weren't uh, necessarily a part of her daily routine. By the way, this is wild to me. And, <clears throat> Quinn, you probably have grown up hearing some of these stories about your grandparents. But oh, yes. the fact that your dad's mom was impacted by World War II. That blows my mind. You know, like, like my, my grandfather fought in World War II, but my parents weren't even really alive in World War II. Your mom was impacted by World War II. That's no crazy to me. She talked about buzz bombs. She'd say, you know what, if the flame goes away a quarter mile in front of you, you better get to the shelter, you better find cover. If it goes out above you, then you're going to be okay. It's just going to fly a little bit further before it. It drops. And How old was she as a kid she in was World War II? probably 17, 18, maybe a really? little bit early, 13, 14. My and part of the reason she went to the North as well is because she was, one, not only a boarding school kid, uh, but she was a ballerina. She was an aspiring ballerina. And so uh, she was learning her discipline as um, a young dancer so that she could one day professionally do it. And that's how my, my parents actually met. So mom was affected by World War II in that capacity. Well, dad was fighting in the Pacific Theater in World War II as a Marine um, and came back um, as kind of the old guy. He was enlisted at like 30. Uh, he was around a lot of young kids. But, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was definitely a guy that uh, had a lot of pride for his country. So he comes back. His, his profession is a singer and... Uh, he, and, he and three other guys, or quartet, the Royal Guards, would travel the world. And they were in, the, in London performing at the Royal Palladium, where Mom was actually dancing in it. And he saw Mom across the stage floor, and, like, she's beautiful, and pursued to court her. And I think back in the day it would be a little weird. Like, her dad is the same age as my dad, who's from England and, or from America, and it's like, Dude, I'd, I'd, I'd tell you, take a hike, buddy. Don't, you know, you're a damn Yankee. Don't even come close to me. And my mom was a little bit standoffish, too. She was, like, same, thinking the same thing. And he was just persistent. He wrote her a letter after he left uh, almost every day and um, broke her down and got to the point where when he did come back, um, they, they fell in love. And but wait, let me, just get, back to let me just get this straight. Let me just get this straight. Your dad is a Marine in World War II. Right. Your mom is a child affected by bombings in London in World War II. Your dad comes back and is no longer a Marine. Is this after the war? Yep, yep. And becomes a professional singer. Yep. Makes a living touring as a singer. Yes. How did that happen? 
He's a, he was had a wonderful voice. He was a, a lead tenor, um, strong voice, operatic kind of voice. Um, grew up in his discipline and going to church and singing in his local church. Had a couple teachers that saw a talent and uh, pursued with him that talent to, to kind of get better at it. And um, was singing prior to enlisting. And so when he came back, he he saw how far he could go with it. And to his credit, um, he didn't want to deal with the mob and Frank Sinatra did, but he was on that kind of level of a singer, um, from what I understand. I didn't he didn't have, want to deal with the mob. He didn't want to be someone else's, not pet, but he didn't want to be at the mercy of someone else dictating what he would do in the business. But where was he? I mean, was he in Las he Vegas? He was in New York. Was he? he was in Vegas. He was, uh, you know, World's Fairs he'd sing with. Um, he sang in the, the road shows with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. Wow. Uh, Martha Ray he sang with. Um, Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, did some stuff with. So he, he was Seems pretty accomplished. accomplished, no doubt. And so I think that's why they got certain gigs in other parts of the world. So that uh, Could you sing? No. Could your brothers? <laughs> no. So, so nobody else could sing. Like, I would think that if your dad's a singer, he's walking around the house just belting out tunes all day long, and then everybody else sort of gets into it. You, no, not at all? So here's the thing. He's kind of like, that's what I did. You guys find your passion and whatever it is and allowed us that latitude to decide what we want to do. Now, if we wanted to pursue some type of musical career, I'm sure he would have had an opportunity to influence us. But I think to his credit, he was like, I was really good at what I did. I don't want to impart, you know, this is what I did. I want you guys to try and do it. Although I would have liked to have had more of a musical side. I think it just opens up a different part of the world. I did to an extent. I had to take piano lessons uh-huh. per mom and... There was nothing worse than seeing your buddies playing wiffle ball out the window and <laughs> playing stickball, and you're grinding on the keyboard to try and figure out this song that you can't read music you've just memorized, so you can get out of the house. Um, and it, it, it was just I wasn't into it. And so looking back, it'd be nothing better to be able to walk to a piano and you hold court. You know, everybody that has that a bit that yeah. talent uh, owns the world, right. owns the room. So I know. I know. I wish I could play piano. That I, part I, of it, it uh, I don't know. It's it's. I give Dad a lot of credit for allowing us to decide what we wanted to do he'd give us you know some some range to you know make our mistakes but he would never influence us on on things that well, he felt but this whole conversation started with why are you so normal and, and the description of because i came from a mom and a dad and dad was a marine who became a you know a singer an accomplished singer and and mom had a career as well as a ballerina or you know an aspiring one and and they had an interesting background. He fought in the war. She was in the war. All these things lead to, you know, sort of a more disciplined life growing up back in the 70s. I, I've, like, everything you describe sounds very normal to me because I feel the same way. Mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, cousins, etc., family dinners. Mm-hmm. That all sounds mm-hmm. really, really normal from my childhood, too. Did these guys grow up that way? Because... <laughs> cause, not only did you wind up becoming a great baseball player and a guy who I'm sure had a heck of a lot more money than what you grew up around, um, could you keep these guys living a normal life even through the world of pro baseball and money and fame? It's a great question, um, and it has an answer. Um, my wife, Tracy, coming up on 25 years of marriage, grew up in a similar situation in Buffalo, New York. Her dad worked for AT&T as a technician and uh, grinding his ass off and obviously being in Buffalo in the winter they don't take time off to fix phones right. and he's up on poles he's in b- buildings and whatnot and um, her mom was always dinner was ready when dad came home and you know make sure you're not in the bathroom because dad has to you know 
get cleaned up from work and whatnot, and a similar dynamic, very middle class, respect, um, work hard at what you do. And I think, fortunately for, for me, that bond and that similar background helped. You're right, we, we're sitting in Rancho Santa Fe. There's, it's a bubble. It's not the way we grew up. There's excess. There's a lot of privilege. There's entitlement. And I think um, a lot of times, you know, what we've struggled with is to try and provide for the kids somewhat of a normal outlook on the way we grew up. And that's impossible. They're growing up in a big league, major league baseball environment. They see what other children have around them. They see what we have as a family. And so I think the biggest thing is they have to understand that some things aren't necessarily normal anywhere else in the world because, again, this, this bubble. But... You can still appreciate the hard work that it took to get to that point. And at some point in time, if you like the things you like, you're going to have to figure out a way to make sure it continues for yourself. So I think that's why we put a uh, priority on education. We put a priority on how we treat people, try and be a good example in front of them so that uh, they can one day make these type of decisions when they're around people that um, might not have as much as they do. And, and ultimately, to be honest with you, it doesn't matter where you come from. It's, I always say it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And there's someone out there working just as hard, if not harder, to try and achieve the things they want to do. And so just because you have the opportunity in front of you, you have the resources, you have to pull it out from within you if you really want to make something happen. Did you make life easier for your kids than life was for you? Absolutely. No, I think I got great joy being able to provide things. And you can ask Quinn now, but you know there are things that, I was hesitant on letting them have, whether it was the newest, greatest iPhone or some type of technological device or it was a vehicle to drive around. And uh, they saw kids driving certain types of vehicles where they were trying to wonder why they were in a, a vehicle that wasn't quite up to the Quinn, snuff what that they wanted. Quinn, when you turned 16, did you get a car? Talk right into I the did, microphone. I did. I did get a car. I got a Jetta, a Volkswagen Jetta. Brand um, new one? A uh, brand new one, yes. Okay. All right. Um, and and did you did you... Not think the Jetta was a good enough car? At first, yeah, to be honest, I, uh, I did. I did uh, kind of threw a little bit of a fit, and uh, they kind of they kind of scolded me, and um, especially my mom. My mom yelled at me a pretty good amount and basically showed me that, you know, you're in an environment of the one percenters, um, and this isn't the norm. And I think that my mom has done a really good job at, uh, at explaining that and making us realize that every day. Um, also, I think I want to attribute to her faith. Her faith has been a huge part of it to show respect to people and to just understand that God has a purpose for everybody else. But, I mean, to be able to just, like, realize where I'm at and how lucky I am um, I mean, yeah, is just I mean, something to, from them. Think about it, right? It's like you're, you're, you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid. Your dad's a famous baseball player. You yeah. can obviously see that dad makes a lot of money. All you have to do is Google dad's salary, and everybody <laughs> can see the $10 bucks you're making a year, right? And um, it's true. And, and, you know, you got a nice house in one part of town. You got a beach house where you get to play. I mean, the kids see all this, and then the norm becomes, back to being normal, the norm is, well, he got a BMW, and he got a Mercedes, and, and, and he got a brand-new Jeep. How come I'm stuck with this Jetta, Dad? You can afford more. But, but there must have been some parenting lessons in there, and there, there must have been some reasons for all of this when you could have easily made life you know, a snap of a finger. Here's a brand new car. I mean, kid. For that reason, absolutely. You want to make them appreciate, no matter what they have, that they're getting an opportunity. The car moves. It will get you from point A to point B. It doesn't have to necessarily be what you think it should be. And if you don't like it, go get a job and provide yourself with something that you would like. So, 
And Did you stick to that? Were you, were you as disciplined to this sort of tough love as it sounds like you grew Tracy up Tracy and around? I were a pretty good combination. They definitely were. <laughs> no, they, they definitely are. I would have been a heck of a lot are. harder, but Mrs. Hoffman was a little bit nicer in oh, that yeah. regard. Okay. Mom when definitely I was, is. Mom is mama when bear. When I would go on road trips... <laughs> Things would go on in the house that were different than when I came home. Movie night, stay you're up not, late. You're not going to the yard if the X, Y, and Z isn't done, and she would help them get X, Y, and Z oh, done yes. so they could go to the yard, probably because she wanted them out of the house and get a little bit of a respite. But uh, now I would have been even harder, I think, had I had the opportunity to kind of be around the house on a daily basis. But I, I knew my role. I knew to stay out of it. So your mom was good cop and dad was bad cop? Oh, yes. Really? Yes. Uh, once dad left for a road trip, We'd all be in mom's room, sleeping in mom's room, watching a movie, <laughs> having popcorn. She'd make surprise popcorn, put a little candy surprise in it. So, popcorn. oh yeah, no, mom she, and her three boys. Yes, she, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's pretty amazing to hear you talk about your wife because, um, you know, it, it just it just has to take a, a very unique kind of woman to herself. You know, knowing a little bit about her background, you know, living in Buffalo, and she's a buffalo bills cheerleader type and so she's around sports and probably loves it you know but but to give up your career it sounds like i'm maybe i'm putting words into her mouth but to move into the baseball life to have kids um young rambunctious i'm guessing boys Mm -hmm. while dad is traveling around and um to, to survive a, a major league or NFL, any kind of professional sports career, to, sur- to have a marriage and a family survive that is, is hard enough. But it sounds like your wife is really, and I know this sounds cliche, but you talk about being willing to be the glue, um, embracing the role of mom, and to some degree the role of, of wife of, in this case, sure. Trevor Hoffman. It, it sounds like your wife really is a very supportive person. Absolutely is. And you hit on a lot of great points about Trace, to be honest with you. The first foremost is she always had a desire to be a mom growing up. And for her to take that selfless identity and understand that we live and play in the city that uh, we're, we're in, um, it, was in, it was important that she was supportive in the way she was. You know, a lot. She 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 was a comfortable being Trevor Hoffman's wife. She never had to be. I'm the husband. I'm the wife of Trevor Hoffman. And so, her faith and her selflessness, and her desire to be a mom and be great at it was components that allowed us to have a fantastic relationship and and a synergy that really worked. And so, you know, I'm kind of a wild child. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not the easiest. Probably. I mean, I'd stay in the clubhouse till one o'clock in the morning and. Sometimes, you know, you have to come down from a game and whatnot, but sometimes it was just I like being in the clubhouse. And so when I did come home, walk through the door, I was home. And so and that departure day, was time was at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, so there were long hours. But uh, I think she understood that that was something that was going to take. Um, she wasn't uh, overly concerned with um, trying to control things that she couldn't control, but uh, I think the biggest thing is that she was so unselfish that it made it work. You think that, Quinn? You think your mom? Is that how you would describe her? Oh, I would just second everything that he just said. Now, he hit pretty much that spot on on what my mom really is. Well, that's interesting also because, you know, you mentioned your dad is from um, the Midwest and you mentioned your mom was from England, but your wife's from Buffalo, so kind of small town and traditional values and blue collar, and you yep. mentioned her dad was a hardworking kind of guy. How did your family get to Southern California? How did you wind up growing up out here? <clears throat> dad was working in Hollywood. 
Um, I think at this point in time was probably doing some stuff with the singing cowboy. Um, probably was maybe some things with Bing Crosby and, and Bob Hope, like I'd mentioned earlier. What and would he have been doing with them? A, kind of maybe backup, maybe kind of some type of a, you know vaudeville type act that they used to do, where you know he'd pop in and he'd be a part of a you know a skit and then maybe out. So you know what that paid, I'm not quite right, sure. But a, or but what a level. bit player is is probably yeah probably so. And for whatever reason, I think that's probably the way he was comfortable making his living. The reason that we grew up in Anaheim. We had two opportunities. My older brother doesn't let, never let my parents live it down, as we had an opportunity to live in Newport Beach or Anaheim. And obviously we'd have loved to have lived in Newport Beach, close to the water, and it sounded great. But the I-5 ended in Anaheim, and he didn't want to have to drive another 10 miles into this house. <laughs> like, we're going we're gonna to go back and forth to Hollywood. I'm going to do it. We're at the end, end of the five uh, stops in the Orange Groves of Anaheim. And so uh, that was kind of what he did until my older brother was about seven years old. And he came to the front door when dad came home and, and goes, Mom, who is that? And it crushed my dad. He said, that's it. He quit on the spot, went and applied at the post office uh, branch down the street and spent 30 years as a postal clerk uh, working out of the house. Your dad was, was upset that his the amount of time he spent working might made- have impeded the relationship that he was going to have with his boys. And he quit the business? Quit the business. Wow. Do you, were you born at this time? I don't think so. No. Yeah. It was still that glimmer. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I think in, in essence it might have been a situation where he kind of saw the writing on the wall um, with his career. Um, he wasn't elevating to Bing Crosby. He wasn't elevating to Frank Sinatra per se. I think he kind of already had gone there and oh. done that. I uh-huh. think it was more this is what how I make my living, okay. and it's comfortable being able to drive to and from uh, to do that. Now, probably wasn't as desired to maybe go – deeper on the road and go back to Vegas and, you know, be a part of a show or, you know, maybe tour New York. They'd, they'd go up and down the coast and hit the different uh, venues that he could all the way up to Alaska and things like that. But they were raising a family. and uh, So he's got a regular guy job now. Yep, regular he's work, guy job. working at the post office, <clears throat> making regular middle-class American no living. Did your mom work? <clears throat> she did not. Okay, so she was a teacher's aide for a little bit um, up the elementary school. So what I'm getting at though is, is dad's working a regular guy, middle class kind of job. Benefits are good, I'm sure, but the money's probably not great. I mean, you got three boys, a wife. You're living here. I mean, what, what was it like growing up? Was it? Did you? Did we you never, not have we never stuff? went. We never wanted for anything. We always were provided the things that we, the necessities of life. We always had a you know shirt on our back and pants and shorts and shoes that uh, were consistent with what was in at the time and uh, we were provided three squares and we were expected to you know adhere to the rules of the house and so I think the other thing that when I came along that I got to see with dad's job is that he got up at four o'clock in the morning to be on time for a five o'clock start and that was that was a grind I mean he's getting into the 70s and he's still cranking it out at four in the morning Um, he, he, he grinded his ass off for his family and so uh, he piggybacked that job. He'd come home during the baseball season, and he'd quickly clean up, get a bite to eat, and off to Anaheim Stadium when they were home. And he was an usher at Anaheim Stadium that I would get a chance to go to with him from time to time while Glenn's starting his professional career and my older brother's out of the house and working for UPS and starting a family. So uh, uh, it was kind of my time to have Dad to myself, which was really cool. And so 
Um, did I to see read baseball that, through his eyes was great. Did I get? Did I also read that sometimes if he uh, if they needed somebody to fill in and do the national anthem, that your dad he still could bust out the pipes? Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to give you another background story. So. Obviously, kind of a neat connection with Gene Autry being the owner of the, the Angels and new dad. And I-5 traffic would block someone making it on time. And he'd always have his tuner, his harmonica. And wherever they'd, he'd be at posted that day, they'd go find him. They'd say, Eddie, can you, you know, hook us up with the anthem today? Absolutely. Tune it up. Knock it out. Um, but when Glenn signed uh, with the Red Sox back in 76 coming out, Joe Stevenson was the scout. They negotiated what they negotiated from a con- contract standpoint, but Glenn finished it with, Joe, I'd like you to put in my contract that if I do ever make it to the big leagues, I'd like my dad to come out and sing the national anthem for my big league debut. Get out of here. He ran it up the flagpole of the, the Yaki family, and, or I'm assuming, and they, 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 they granted yes. Glenn, you make it to the big leagues, we'll let your dad come and sing the national anthem. And they kind of did their background. Like he wasn't a Yahoo or whatever. He knew what he was doing. So Glenn makes it to the big leagues in 81. We're set to go back. I bust an appendix. I'm in the hospital for two weeks. Can't go. Mom's with us. Um, You're probably a little kid, 12 years old. 11 years old. Yeah. I was pissed. I was like, no way. I'm going to miss going to Fenway Park and whatnot. Um, Dad goes back. It's the first game back for, uh, I think it was Dennis Eckersley. No, Carlton Fisk. First game back with the White Sox. Harry Carey's announcing the game. ESPN somehow picks it up. They got Dad on camera singing the national anthem. Bus busts it out, does an awesome job. That's the video that they used at my retirement ceremony uh-huh. when I, I was it. got the 51 retired here in San Diego. So 30 years later, basically, you know that same footage gets used. But uh, yeah, it was it was always I always got nervous. I always got nervous about Dad singing the anthem. They screw up the words <laughs> or whatnot, and it's like, son, I'm not gonna, I'll never screw that up. So it's pretty funny. Pretty amazing to hear, uh, Quinn. I mean, I'm guessing you've probably grown up around these kinds of stories, but. Isn't it interesting to hear how a guy becomes who he is in life, right? Like, don't you think about oh, like, like think about it. Like, older brothers are playing ball. Older brother, when you're 11 years old, is already in the big leagues. Dad is is an usher at the games and is occasionally singing the anthem. I mean, you're you're around baseball, you're just around it. You know what? What were you seeing? Like, if you're the 12 year old or 14 year old kid, or even even younger, what are you seeing? at the ballpark that's making you or or through your brother what's making you think i want to do that too well i was dumb enough to think that's it was that easy just to think i could do it and we're going to make that happen um in reality you know i i I realized how kind of hard it was just going getting ready to go through high school and okay glenn's big a player of the year in orange county he's all this he's all that he's basically the version of what alan trammell was they went the same draft different teams obviously um and I was nowhere near that player. I was lucky to make varsity baseball as a sophomore and never had the type of high school career that warranted even a sniff. That's why I ended up going to the junior college route. It gave me a chance to develop. Got an opportunity again to go to the Division One rank. So I guess in my eyes, one, I didn't. I was dumb enough to not know any better that it couldn't happen. And you know, I mentioned earlier, having a dream is as important as not, you know anything else. It can be your motivation. And so regardless of whatever your path is, I think I'm living proof that I had no business getting to be the place I'm at other than, you know what, if I continue to get my education, I get to extend my opportunity to play the game, and I get better at it, and I keep grinding away, and I keep getting to, you know, be the guy that's at the top of the heap at each and every season. I'll continue to get play. Who knows what could happen at one point in time. By the way, we were talking about dreams. This is unfortunately before this, this the mics got turned on. Quinn, I, I said to Quinn, I said, hey, what a cool thing. You're going to Harvard, and 
I, I kind of made you, you probably heard me I made a little bit of an assumption like oh well you must not want to play pro baseball you're playing <laughs> at Harvard yeah and you said no the opposite is yeah, the case no, I, I said my dream is to be able to play professional baseball um but this past year I did have a surgery a major surgery um on my shoulder on my labrum um that did set me back and made me have to sit back and kind of look at look at baseball in a different lens and to be able to look at it in that sort of sense um to be able to have Harvard as a backup plan, to be able to have that degree, possibly to use it down the road, um, I'm very fortunate for that. Dude, your father fought in World War II. <laughs> your father worked in a post office for 30 years. He had a second job as an usher at the stadium. And your freaking son goes to Harvard, dude. Pretty cool, right? And you're in you the Hall talk, of Fame, by the way. You want to talk one percenters? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And you're in the Hall of Fame. You, forget one percent. That just got us down to one one millionth of a percent. Dude, I can't tell you how proud I am of all my kids. Um, Quinn's having the time of his life. He's getting an amazing opportunity. It's up to him that he seizes what he can with it. But uh, my other two boys bring me great joy. They're amazing, amazing men. Um, and, and likewise, I think that the world is their oyster and they have an opportunity in front of them. Well, let me then move into the Hall of Fame stuff. Because like I said at the beginning, everybody wanted to talk to you before you went in. I wanted to wait until afterwards. And we're a few. <laughs> we're, yeah, because this is comfy. You know, everybody else is just trying to grab you down at the ballpark. Um, th- this is um, an interesting thing. You know, the, the speech that you delivered was so brilliant. And, and I know you got, I mean, you somehow got everybody in. But I'll just work a little bit backwards. You mentioned your boys. I thought it was an amazing thing the way you mentioned all of them and mentioned something about each of them that you really loved and i'm kind of just off the top of my head you know something about leadership and something about personality and something about free spirit i'm close i don't you know got all three of them that's it, it. yeah <laughs> I mean, just just explain how you wanted to to talk about your kids at the hall of fame i think that's just it i, I didn't want to get long-winded um i knew i was going to get emotional as it was and so by being able to pick out a couple of their qualities that i see and encourage them to pursue something in those realms is it was important um, his determination and leadership that st- stood out to me and it's something i wanted to explain to him brody's humor and then it was wyatt's free spirit and tender heart that is a unique combination but it was parlayed after john wooden's quote about character and reputation and so um, i was excited to deliver that part i was excited to potentially look them in the eye and do it but if i did that i was going to absolutely lose it and so uh, uh and we'd kind of meant, talked a little bit about the pace of the speech maybe being a little quick go on, having gone back and looked at it, it it's actually totally fine but the pace actually helped me from getting emotional Big time. i was constantly thinking about the next thought deliver it get on to the next one but uh yeah when you get a chance to talk about your kids and your wife um and a light in that environment in that stage um i couldn't have been more proud what were you thinking quinn when you're sitting there watching i mean i, I Everybody talks to your dad and, and asks him, so what was it like delivering that kind of speech? What was it like writing that kind of speech? I mean, all these things that you talk about. But rarely do we get an opportunity to talk to a 20-year-old young man. This is a real treat today as we get the sound of Look, look, look over oh, yeah. us right here, freedom, guys. Yeah, look at this, though. Four of them. Four F-18s flying right so over good. us. Dude, we just got our own flyover. All lined this is up. awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> Play ball! <laughs> so, as they'll fly over, but what is it like, and just... just for you to be sitting there watching your dad you already knew he yeah. got in everybody was there for that celebration so you already knew he was in yeah. but, but well, now it was time to, to give the speech what, what was yeah, it like well, you know it, i think it was kind of unique uh in the fact that he didn't actually tell us what he was going to say in his speech he really uh kind of kept it a secret him and my mom 
stayed upstairs and they really did work on the speech together. He told my mom to leave the room when he was working on his on her part, um, but he really didn't tell us anything about the speech, so I wasn't even prepared for what he was gonna say. I didn't know how long our parts were or what he was, where he was gonna go with the speech, but I I kind of just listened to it and tried to take bits and pieces from what he said and um, the, um, some of the things that he said about character and um, about just your your true self and. The fact that you want people to to be you want to be defined by a, a character that's uh, of uh, honesty and integrity, but um, yeah, that wooden that wooden quote was Tom Wooden, yes, was just could, do you re recall it? It was be more concerned about your character than your reputation. Your character is who you really are, whether your reputation is what merely other things you are. <laughs> yeah, good yeah. stuff. Yeah. It might have been a little bit of a, a little bit off, but. Coach Wooden was – I had a chance to meet him in Petco Park um, before he passed at 94. He held court for about an hour. I don't know if you were in the audience that day or not. Mm -hmm. um, but was very coherent and very clear with his thoughts and ease at talking about things. And he could recite poems. And he just kind of blew me away about the person that he is. It piggybacked a book that we always <laughs> used to read our kids called Inch and Miles. And yep. Inch and Miles is the pyramid of success only in kid form. So – it's hilarious. You know, I'll give you a little bit of insight in the speech, too, that we got to the point where, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned something else, and I said, you know, Jimmy Lett and Mike Griffin gave me a chance to, you know, second chance in baseball. So off to the mound I went. And I, there's, a, like, a part of me that wanted to, if you read the book, it's like, hootie toot toot when they go off to the next <laughs> person that's going to give them a piece of the, the building blocks of personal best and pyramid of success. And it, it, it was it's just funny that uh, that part of it. Is what it is, but uh, how, how Co is Coach it? Wooden is just—he was such a, a down-to-earth guy. His, his quotes could be related to anybody. I think they're building blocks to trying to be a good person. If you're a little bit, maybe you're in a, and not in a great environment to find your personal best, this could be an opportunity to read his book. It, you know, be a great you know book from a kid standpoint to read and. There's a message in there for everybody. Well, I'm glad you just told people that, seriously, because, you know, everybody hears about Wooden's, you know, Pyramid of Success, but how many people have actually read the book? I know I haven't. I haven't, I, and I think I will, seriously. You know, I was uh, with Landon Donovan a few weeks ago. Have mm -hmm. you got a chance to meet Landon? I all? haven't. He's a really interesting guy. Um, I say interesting, but he's about one of the most interested people, interested people I've ever met. He, if he were sitting here with you right now, he'd be like, Scott, be quiet. Trevor, I have a million questions. Uh -huh. He's just that kind of guy, you know. Um, he told me in great detail, and it was really fascinating, how a kid like him, and he grew up the way he would tell it to you, he was poor, mm -hmm. single mom who was a special ed teacher, uh, brother and sister, and had no financial ability to be playing club soccer. So somebody picked him up, somebody yep. took him to practice, somebody scholarshiped him, and then he literally went detail by detail. And the stories were fascinating about how he elevated to become the top U.S. soccer player, and it's just really a mind blow. Could you just, in some detail, because we all know the story. The story is, you were a shortstop, okay, he couldn't hit, we turned him into a pitcher. That's the story. But there's got to be more detail, because when you're the shortstop, you're the best player on the team normally. When you're playing at Arizona, and you're a shortstop, and you're the leading hitter on the team, you seem destined to be a major league ball player. How did this all happen? Like, really? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you set it up fantastically for me to give you an egg. Um, in all reality, I think maybe it wasn't meant to be the first plan, we'll say. Um, college baseball, you can kind of be 
you can kind of get caught up in the rah-rah. You can kind of get caught up in, you know, gearing up for the weekend series against somebody. Um, and I, that fit my personality. It fit my workout kind of feel of things. When I got into pro baseball, I got exposed. I got exposed, one, with a wood bat in my hand, not being able to know how to swing it, and two, not knowing how to handle failure on a daily basis. I go over four and make an error, and I would it would just stick with me all night, and I'd fret over it. I wouldn't get sleep, and then I'd come back to the yard and go, oh, this is where I went over four with an error yesterday. I could never put it behind me. And so, and basically failure is a huge part of baseball as, a, as an infielder slash hitter. You know, you're, you're going to Hall of Fame if you succeed three out of ten times. That's a little bit of a stretch too, but you get the gist. And so there was no way I could have thought, oh, we'll just go to the mound and everything's going to be fine. You know, I hadn't pitched since Little League. My dad didn't let us throw after 12 years old when we, you would go to the big field and you're still a little guy and you're playing at the same size stuff that the big leaguers do. He didn't want to get my arm hurt. And so he just basically said continue on as an as a infielder kind of guy. But when I kind of was faced with the reality and the writing on the wall that I wasn't good enough, and I, I knew I wasn't a good enough hitter. For some reason, I was making errors, but I had a good arm. For them to come to me and say, hey, we're going to give you a second chance. We want to see what you can do in the, in the, in the bullpen. I said, you know what, this is my, ta- this one, my one skill set that I do have. Let's embrace it. We're going to the other side of the failure rate. We're going to hopefully succeed seven out of ten times. And let's give this thing a shot. And I think by completely – immersing myself into becoming the best version of myself as a pitcher and not, well, you know what, I'll still take batting practice. I'm going to live those glory days when the pitchers get to hit. It was like that was not the furthest thing from my mind. It's like we're moving forward as a pitcher, and uh, the fork in the road is the direction I'm going to go. But that's kind of – that that's – it's hard to not, – not believe. It's hard to understand, I think. So if you're a position player and you're good – and then all of a sudden you get exposed, your mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says to you, we're going to change your position completely. Like, could you imagine if you're a quarterback and somebody comes to you and says, we're going to make you a wide receiver. Most guys' egos do not allow that to happen. So I'm wondering why you weren't reacting a different way, maybe like this. Oh, I'm not good enough? I'll work even harder. I'll go to the cages even more. Right. I'll prove to you that you're wrong. I mean, wh- why were you so able to say, okay, I'll, I'll just give this a try? I think I was a good self-evaluator, to be very honest with you. I knew what I, it was in my heart when I went home at night. I knew how difficult it was going to be having watched my brother go through it. Like He was able to get to the highest of levels as an infielder. And that work that was going to be in front of him, I, I just didn't think I had the capacity to do that. And so... It wasn't I was quitting on myself. It wasn't that I wasn't thinking of those things. But I truly felt like, you know what? I've, I got this good arm. I can I can put the ball wherever I want. Like, this is going to be kind of easy. Why, why try and slow the process down and, and wait? Let's, let's just get to it earlier rather than later. Why would you have thought pitching would be easier when you hadn't pitched since you were 12 years old? Partly because when I did go into the bullpen sessions and – I'd watch other guys get ready for ball games, and I'd watch, you know, their secondary stuff. They didn't throw a lot of strikes, and their velocity wasn't as good as mine. And I didn't really have any semblance of mechanics at the time, and they didn't really bother me with it. Um, and so when I got up there the first time, you know, it was an it was an easy 94, 95. 
I was able to kind of put it here. I was able to put it there. Mixed in something that spun. And I kind of saw my coach's eyes kind of like light up and kind of look at each other and go, we might have something here. And so it, it just kind of made me feel comfortable right out the chute to uh, to feel comfortable about the transition. But I, I, I get where you're coming from. It's kind of really is hard to believe. And I think that's kind of why this story is so remarkable. Well, wait, it's compounded, though, by this. So you kind of describe, um, again, my words now, you kind of describe becoming a head case. I was a head case as a field goal kicker. If I missed field goals, I go to the sideline, the great guys in one ear, out the other. Hey, I missed. It's over. I'll get the next one. Not me, boy. I was on that sideline beating myself up. You suck. You, know, you should quit. I mean, I'm exaggerating. But, but, but I, I also had a hard time with the mental part of the game, and there was nobody, at least back then for me, to coach the mental part of the game. I, I wish my son would listen to what I'm telling him now because I know more shit than he'll ever know, and I could give it to him right now, and he's 18, but he won't take it from me. My point is, though, that if you were struggling mentally – with, uh-oh, I'm back at the same ballpark where I was 0 for 4 and I had an error yesterday. How were you able to stop being that guy as an infielder and as a hitter and become a guy who could then blow a save one day and come back and get it the next day? Well, I think you have, to, you have to look at the fact that as a hitter, you're reacting to what the pitcher's doing to you. And so when I went to the mound, I all of a sudden became in control. Nothing was going to happen until I decided to throw the pitch. Um, in that, in those circumstances, I think there becomes power. And in what we talked about earlier, I've gone to the flip side. I've gone to the success rate that I'm going to go seven or eight times in a row and have success versus fail that amount of time and get beat up and be negative and whatnot. And you could be positive. It's like, hey, I executed my job. That was a lot of fun. I'm leaving the park in a happy mood. Okay, today was a little bit of a hiccup. That's where the routine kind of came from. Develop a routine so that when there is a hiccup, it's, you know what, go back to what worked yesterday. Okay, you get back on track and you have another run of success. It's hard not to be a head case when you fail like you do as a hitter. Um, it's just part of the n- nature of the game, and it's, it's difficult to deal with. Yeah, I was a head case, man. <laughs> total head case. Seriously, total head case. I once- that's, the, that's what you have to kind of put out. You have to stop listening to that noise. You have to kind of not listen to your self-talk, be negative. I mean, I, I went through that part. When you get to the big league level and you have to face – the best hitters in the game and there is that glimmer of doubt and you start telling yourself god i hope i do this i hope i can get through that's bad talk and you have to figure out that ultimately at some point in time you have to feed the things that you want to see the outcome look like and that's i will execute and you control what you can control not i will get them out i will execute the pitch i want i will make it right where i want to put it and now now you're you're just speaking to yourself differently how did you then go from They've moved me from infielder to they've given me some bullpen sessions. I'm easily throwing 94, 95. Coach's eyes are lighting up. Ooh, that felt good. They actually liked what they saw. How, what did you think you were going to be as a pitcher? Did you think you were going to be a starter? Did you think you were going to did you Did you even think ahead at that no, point? No, I didn't. And I think the beauty of it was it allowed me to really compartmentalize, almost to an OCD kind of standpoint, pitch to pitch out to out, inning to inning. And in doing so, you can stay in the moment better. You cannot, you know, have these conversations with yourself. And when you're done pitching, you go and you get ready for the next day. 
if it was a starter and I got a chance to start for about five months, it's a different type of preparation. But when I got through an inning, I go sit down, I get back up, I go out and do another inning. I got done with that inning, I go sit down and think about it and get ready for the next inning. And then when the game was done, I had four days. These are the things I'm going to do in between the four days. It just The routine of pitching, whether it was in the bullpen or in the, as a starter, just fit my personality. It fit my performance to a degree better than it did as an infielder. So at what point do you start to work towards I'm going to be in this role, I'm going to be this specialist? How does that start to happen? How does that take shape? I think that's the organization that kind of starts to, you know, guide you in a certain direction. Well, give me the year okay, and where so you are. I'm in A-ball. I make the transition to pitching. Um, I'm Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I got Frank Funk, a former big league pitching coach for the Kansas City Royals, as my manager. And he didn't want to inundate me with too much mechanical stuff. He saw a live arm. He saw a personality that works in the bullpen. He said, just go. Just And there was a couple times he came out in the middle of an at-bat, at like 2-1 or I'm up to two strikes, excuse me. And he said, Hoffy, I just want to see how hard you can throw this pitch. <laughs> it had nothing to do with, you know, execute, get this guy out, or you know what, he's looking in, let's go away. It was like, dude, I just want you to rear back and throw this freaking thing as hard as you can. All right, Funky, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so that year worked really well for me, you know, and that was out of the pen. But I hadn't developed any pitches. Like, I wasn't getting to my curveball. I didn't need to. I was blowing people away with a fastball, moving it around. I didn't develop a changeup. I hadn't developed a slider. So they wanted me to try and do that, and that's where I went to the mound uh, as a starter to, to kind of do that for, you know, basically a year. And it was great. I moved up the ranks really fast. I got to AAA doing that. And it couldn't have been a better situation with the Cincinnati Reds where they go to the World Series. All their minor league prospects are getting suppressed because nobody's coming up to help. I'm shooting through the system fast even in this situation. And then I hit a roadblock in AAA a little bit where – my last two starts, they're not very good. I, you know, my ERA goes from like a three to a, a four and a half. They think they can slip me through the expansion draft because the timing of it's just right. But the floor did their due diligence. They had great scouts. Gary Hughes is a guy that uh, I see all the time still that goes, you know, we saw enough when you were in the, in the bullpen. We saw enough as you were a starter. You had two bad starts. They tried to sneak you through with, you know, Mo Sanford and Tim Pugh and some of these other guys that they felt had better seasoning to protect. And they seized an opportunity and brought me over. Okay, so when when I'm thinking about this now, because you're describing this amazing thing, you're just blowing guys away with fastballs. You just went into the Hall of Fame. Nobody thinks of Trevor Hoffman as a guy who blows anybody away right. with fastballs. <laughs> right. So so now. That's a good point. So, so so now what happens? I still envision myself doing that though. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds psychotic. I got it. I, I can, that 85 looked like 95. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what happened though? So so how do you go from a guy who's pitching ninety five easy to to a guy who elevates through the ranks as a pitcher as a starter? How do you wind up becoming? Where do you learn the what becomes the Hall of Fame pitch, the changeup? Kind of a byproduct of being stupid. Um, you know the the the, 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 the strike year of ninety four. Um, it's August. I mean, we're literally five days away from that date, and we sit around in 80-degree weather in San Diego, and I'm coming back, and I'm going to have, in my mind, maybe a week off. And so I'm going to the beach, <laughs> and we're going to hang out and party and play volleyball and do everything I couldn't do for the last 15, 20 years after being leaving Anaheim because I'm in the middle of nowhere playing baseball. I'm going to have fun on the beach. And this is my stupid personality. I just go a little bit too far, and 
you know, I made a great play in volleyball. The guy tried to just tap it over the net. I pancake it. It pops up. We kind of get the point, but I heard a little pop go out of my shoulder. And I'm like, I didn't. That didn't sound good. It felt a little stiff afterwards, and yeah, it would be all right. So now it's we're firing a Nerf football around the beach, and we're trying to make plays like you did in the NFL and yeah. dive into the water. And you know, the wave was like the blocker, and you kick. You know, and there's a sandbar. Hit my shoulder again. Oh no. And so the <clears throat> moral of the story is I came back and my 95 is now 90 and my shoulder's cranky and it's going to take a lot of work to kind of get it going. Um, and it forced my hand to try and go, your equalizer pitch was to be able to locate a 95 mile heater wherever you want. And it was kind of working at the big league level to a degree, but now I needed to find something else to get people out. And fortunately, just talking with a teammate, Donnie Elliott's his name. Had a funky grip on his changeup. Had good action, and he actually is funny because he was there this past weekend. I didn't a chance to talk to him, but he talked about Jim Tomey being a guy that forced him to be have a better changeup because he just teed off on him. We talked about it at the time. It worked. It felt better in my hand. It, from that point, it helped me morph into a pitch that I literally could make you look like I was throwing a fastball, and I could throw it today. Maybe not today, today, but I could throw it where people have a hard time catching it. It was that good, and so I was able to 90 miles an hour. I'd throw a pitch 74 that looked the exact same way out of my hand. It would get about halfway there, and they're committing because it's so, you know, you have to commit in baseball. And I'm disrupting timing. I got away with a, a really cool pitch. How did you cultivate it, though? It, it, because when you say the first time you went into the bullpen, 94, 95, fastball, placing it, okay. Did you have the same instant success? Oh, hey, look, I learned how to grip this, and now I can throw it like this. I mean, was it instant? Instant. Come on. Instant. I mean, I'm, I'm – Living a pretty blessed role here. You know, <laughs> I've been uh, I've been given pretty cool opportunities, but I think it goes back to just being completely mind open, like not closed minded. Like I can't do it because you're you know you're 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 better at it than I am. It's like fearless. Like hey, that works for you. Show it to me, and I'm gonna give it a shot. And I was comfortable with how it felt right away. If you're not Mario Andre, right? If you're not, if you're driving a little slow or tentative, you're not driving hard enough, and that's almost identical to kind of the way I played the game of baseball. You ever, Quinn, stand in the batter's box and have your dad throw one of his changeups at you? Oh, a lot actually. In the in the cage of the house um, in high school, he used to throw his BP, and then and get a little competitive. We used to tee off on him a little bit and during BP. BP <laughs> fastballs hit our barrel. And then all of a sudden he'd just start mixing different pitches on us and wouldn't say anything. And then he'd get competitive and he's like 50 feet away from us trying to throw as hard as he can. And by that point his arm shot. But <laughs> he was walking out after like an hour of throwing BP and just his arms hanging. And then he's, It was fun to cranky. compete with him for sure. And it, I think it gave them not only an opportunity to kind of see, okay, I got to be ready for something firm. I got to be something for, ready for something soft. But they got a chance to see what it was like to be in the batter's box when – I would throw, you know, a pitch that was really successful for me. How was life for you when you retired? You, you, what was it like to, to go, you know, I hear it all the time from football players. You know, they've lost their routine. They don't have coaches telling them where to be and when. They're, they're around their wives and kids more, so maybe there's more irritation because you know, they weren't around. as. How, how was it for you when you ended your career and now you're home all the time? These guys are coming up. You're with your wife through the baseball season. How was all that? Well, fortunately, Tracy likes me, so <laughs> I was embraced when I came home. I was fired up to be able to watch these guys uh, grow up because I literally retired and Brody was starting high school the next day. Um, 
and I knew it was time to leave. The, the, I always said the hitters will let me know when it's time to go. And the contact was starting to get louder. Um, I wasn't having the success. I had a nice run. It was, it was instead of hanging on. It was time to go home, and I was comfortable with it. And I turned the page, sort of like my dad did. You know, he was comfortable walking away from his singing career with what he'd accomplished and move on to the next phase. And I was good. Now I wasn't as great with my routine. I think I always had the built-in. No, I'm sorry, I can't go to your event. Sorry, no, I can't do this. I have baseball. I have stuff I got to take care of. Now, you know, I got tugged at from a couple different directions, oh, so I had to learn how to say no in yeah. a different way. It's hard. It's totally hard. But I couldn't. I, I was getting an opportunity for all the hard work I put in. I get to kind of live my life now. And of all the great things that I was able to be a part of in baseball and to witness, one of my favorite moments was when Quinn and Wyatt were on the same field together as a shortstop and a second baseman in high school in the CIF Open Division Championship. And they ended up winning the, 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 the CIF Open Division at Cathedral. And to, to see the just the emotion that they were showing, Quinny caught the last out and he immediately goes to his brother. They embrace. I got a cool picture of it. I could, it just from a guy that had to be in charge, was a power-driven guy, to have no say in the matter and enjoy what I got to witness in the game of baseball from a different atmosphere, uh, different perspective, was one of my biggest highlights. Wow. Well, I'm just curious then because we can all learn from from this, um, and I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll end it here. I, that's a great highlight. You know, we can all talk 479, 500, 600, the Hall of Fame this past weekend. What's the lowest point you were ever at? Yeah. Um, probably Philadelphia. Um, when it was a doubleheader, we had rain delays throughout the doubleheader. There was no time constraints on when an inning could start or a game could start. We started the second game at like 1.30 in the morning, had more delays. I didn't play in the first game. I hadn't played in the second game. And this was coming off of after I got traded, had Cincinnati and Chicago at home, sucked getting booed, hearing it on the radio, value for value. And I'm hearing it. I was like, for some reason, I hadn't listened to any talk radio show before. You know, I'd stayed away from it. I'm hearing everything. I'm hearing all the noise. I'm, my focus is out here rather than being laser. I, go into, I get into the second game, ninth inning, tenth inning, tie ball game. Mitch Williams, pitcher, comes up to the plate. He's got like ten at-bats in his career. Hits an absolute missile over the shortstop's head. Wins the game. Look up at the clock. It's 4.41 in the morning. Teammates are around me. They're devastated because we're just not playing good baseball. Go into the locker room. The food's been sitting there for four hours probably. It tastes like crap. Not that he tried to. Cordon Bleu, I think it was. still remember what it was. <laughs> I get on the bus. As we're driving back to the hotel, the sun's starting to come up. I'm going, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And so we kind of go back to, you know, why were you able to persevere? And that, that was a probably the lowest moment I could have had as a pitcher in the game of baseball that now I'm faced with, okay, now what are you going to do? You had success. You got here. I've always heard it's easier to get there than it is to stay there. Now you've exhausted the other opportunity. This is, you know, you're on borrowed time here. You have to fight now. You're going to, you got two options. You either go home or you stay. And so um, got a lot of support from Trace. She came out, met us in Montreal, got me through a tough time there. Um, encouraged, just kind of having some support system around me helped. And started to pick up some some steam. Started to get some traction. What do you think of that, Quinn? Oh, I think that's great. Actually, uh, never really heard that story before. 
to be honest. That's the first time. You're not listening, as I've told I heard it. that. I <laughs> <probably> forgot. <laughs> well, it's always, it's always, you know, listen, we can all kind of learn from the highs, right? We can all see the highs. So rarely do we get to hear or see the lows. And when you do, people learn from it, you know? Definitely. I mean, I mean dude, there's the, the, being in the Hall of Fame now, and I don't know if today your life is any different, is it? No, nope. he's still dead. <laughs> he's, right. he's still dead. We can still give him crap. No different. Yeah, today you're just you know now it's like when you sign an autograph. I think it's a choice though. I think you know a lot of the teammates, not even teammates, a lot of guys in the game. You mentioned it. You know the guys retire. They don't know what to do themselves. I think if your identity is you as a player in the uniform versus the person, you're going to have some challenges when you leave wherever situation is. I was fortunate that the Padres brought me back in a capacity that I'm still around the game. It's manageable from a part that gets to be involved, but I also still have a life with my family. It's a, such a great blend. I get that opportunity. A lot of guys don't. When they, when they leave the game, they not, might not ever walk back into a professional venue ever again, and that's hard to deal with, especially when you invest so much time. So I'm blessed to be able to have – I get to go at Petco. I get to hang out. I get to have beers with the guys in the clubhouse. You know, it's awesome. I mean, I get the, I'm the winning, winning. Yeah. And so, no, not, not much has changed. I still – we live in a, an amazing city here. Amazing people are cool as crap. When I'm around town, they're super thankful. It's a good good gig. Yeah, I mean, really, it is. It's an amazing gig. <laughs> well, isn't it nice to just kind of sit down and talk, you know, like yeah. not, not be rushed and kind of hang out? It's, mm-hmm. it's cool. Well, hey, congratulations, obviously. Nice, the, the Hall of Fame thing is just insane. The, you know, we talk about we his life We much on it, to be honest with you. Well, no, because you know why? Because that's what it's all been all about. You know, I think people will hear this and they'll go, wow, I got to hear about mom and dad and wife and kids and highs and lows and experiences. And, and that's how we will all be able to listen to this at the end and go, that's how this guy became a Hall of Famer, you know, and that's that's really cool, you know. So thanks for sharing all of that. I appreciate it, man. I oh, really do. Was awesome. It was thanks awesome. Tag cool? along. Thanks for being here, Yeah, Quinn. dude. Thank this you, dude. Great. That was awesome, awesome. Quinn. Wait, you know, I did a podcast a few weeks ago on Father's Day uh-huh. with my son, who's 18, and my father. It's the first time the three of us had ever really? been together on Father's Day. And we sat around in my little podcast studio at my house and talking and telling stories and a little bit, you know, and kind of getting into my son a little. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cool. This you get is, it. This is awesome. <laughs> this is great. Thank you, Trevor, and congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you, right. brother. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Quinn. I hope you loved listening to Trevor Hoffman and his son, Quinn, as much as I loved sitting with them and talking to them. The whole beginning of, of how normal people are and where normalcy comes from. And you listen to Trevor talk about his parents, his brothers, family, dinner. Dad comes home from work. Mom's got dinner on the table. I mean, that's the way it was, at least the way it was for many of us growing up back in, you know, he's 51. So back in the 70s, early 80s. I mean, it, we were still in the, I would call it family values world back then when I say that, I mean, you might be thinking, like, what are you talking about? I, the whole world was completely different. I mean, anybody who grew up back then grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now you've got kids like Trevor does, a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, um, you know, like I do, 18, 16. I mean, the, the kids today, they, as we all could sound old by saying this, they don't understand the way life was back then, how much simpler it was and how much more it was about family and unit normalcy, uh, consistency, discipline. So I loved listening to Trevor talk about all those things because when you think about it, you hear that stuff and then you go, yeah, well, no wonder his ego didn't get in the way when he was told, you're not a shortstop anymore, we're going to turn you into a pitcher. 
I mean, his ego didn't get in the way. His father's ego, his father, a performer, a singer, a, a guy traveling the world, a guy who had a, a legit career. Uh, he maybe didn't elevate to A-list superstar, but he had a legit career making money as a performer. When, when he gave up performing and went to work at a regular guy job and did it for his family, I mean, you can understand, you can start to see the patterns. Like, how did this guy not have an ego? Like, wow, I'm at Arizona and I'm a star and now you're telling me I can't hit and, and I'm not going to be a shortstop anymore. It, it really is interesting to hear people's stories. It's kind of like I always enjoy seeing old films of legendary players when they were in high school. Like, if you've ever seen a film, uh, this, I call it film because that's what it was back then. John Elway in high school. You go, wow, I could see that guy as an NFL player, even back then. So when you hear these stories of back then, how'd they get here today? I think they're, they're inspirational. They're interesting. They're entertaining. Uh, they're, they're just so good to hear because um, Trevor Hoffman's a very normal person, even though he had a very abnormal life experience of being great hall of fame, caliber, multi-million dollar superstar pitcher. So incredible stuff as always. Thank you again for being here. I love the fact that you are, are listening to these podcasts. I get to see the numbers. I know a lot of people are listening. Oh, and I'll just remind you of this. So I've been saying all along, you know, help me out with this, this, this platform I'm building. We're giving away T-shirts. We're giving away ball caps. Email me, scott.kaplan, scott.kaplan at sided.co, scott.kaplan at sided.co. All I ask you to do is go help us beta test, sign up for an account, uh, we're fixing a lot of things based on your suggestions. So beta.sided.co. Sign up for an account. Jump into a debate. Hit me on Twitter. Send me an email. Give me your feedback. I'd appreciate it. Last thing, I, I always have to thank sponsors. Sponsors make this all happen. And I'm going to start off with some great friends. You know, this is the time of the year in Southern California, even though it's been crazy hot. Del Mar racing season, San Diego. This is the greatest time of year. And my place, my spot is the Brigantine. And in fact, coming up in the next couple of weeks, um, I'm going to be inviting some of our podcast guests to join us at the Brigantine, have lunch, hang out. I'm finding going places and having fun, having lunch and having a conversation. It's been a lot of fun. So the Brigantine is going to host us in the next few weeks. They're a great sponsor. They've been great friends. The best fish taco on the planet at the Brigantine. So if you're listening from outside of San Diego and you come into town, telling you it's a guilty pleasure. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, it's crunchy, it's fried, and it's worth the calories. The Brigantine Fish Tacos, and by the way, the rest of the menu is insane as well, but the view in Del Mar overlooking the track, and if you're in Southern California and you're in San Diego, you got to try the Brigantine if you haven't already. If you're San Diego, you probably already know it. And so thank you to the Brigantine. Thank you to my friends at Callaway Golf. If, if you are a radio listener, you'll know that in the next couple of weeks, and a year from now, this will be dated. But the next couple of weeks, we're doing a long drive competition with our friends from Callaway. We're doing this all on the air. Uh, the winner's going to get a full set of irons, the new Rogue irons. I played golf just recently. So bad. Just so terrible. Uh, these, these irons are so powerful. you got to relearn your game. And so Callaway Golf been a terrific sponsor and a longtime great friends. My man Jason Finley up at Callaway Golf has been the, the, the conduit between Scott and BR, the radio station, Callaway Golf, this podcast. So much love to my friends at Callaway Golf. 
their website, CallawayGolf.com. And if you are into podcasts, they do a lot. If you're a golf fan, this will really interest you at CallawayGolf.com. And then lastly, as always, my guys at Gorilla Movers, Casey and the team, thank you. If, if you're moving in town, out of town, if you're moving around town, GorillaMovers.com. They're the guys to go to. Total pros, GorillaMovers.com. So thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to all the great friends who continue to listen and support this podcast. Thank you to Trevor and Quinn Hoffman because you you guys make amazing content and you give me that time and for that I'm very grateful. So until next time. No, that's it. Until next time. Like, I'm done. Like, let's go. I gotta go do other stuff today. I'll see you guys later. Interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that I never keep the drugs. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune into the next edition.